good morning, everybody. Uh, it's great to be with you again. Thank you to Kate for reading that for us and uh, for coping so well with all those names and places. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the story of this man called Abraham or Abraham, as he becomes later on in the Bible. And I just want us to recap the promises that God gave to Abraham, because these promises are really important. And maybe you've only just recently started joining us for these online services. Uh, we had an Easter message last week. Um, so it's been a couple of weeks now since we've looked at these promises. So it'd be good just to remind ourselves of the promises that God gave to Abraham. And we've been singing a song to remind us of those promises. Um, so children, particularly, I want you to tell me if you can remember the promises that God gave to Abraham. They're gonna come up on the screen now. So it's to do with God's something in God's something else, under his something, knowing his something. Now, shout out at the screen if you can remember what those things are. You, you fill in the blanks. I, I can't, quite, can't quite hear you loud enough. You have to shout out a bit more. That's right. So God's people in God's place under his rule and they will know his blessing those are the promises that God gave to Abraham promises about a people about a place and those people in God's place as they listen to God's word they would know his blessing a blessing that would go from Abraham and Abraham's family out to the whole world so hopefully you can remember those promises and you'll remember this song that we sang a couple of weeks ago. Now, I've got some actions, but you might have come up with some better actions than me. If you haven't, then you can stick with my actions. But I'm sure you can think of some better actions than these ones. So we've got God's people in God's place under his rule because he's the king and they will know his blessing, his blessing. God is gonna give such wonderful things to God's people in God's place. So the music is gonna start and the words will be on the screen. Uh, let's sing and dance and enjoy this song together. Creation, Adam and Eve and the fall Noah, the flood and the Tower of Babel God had a plan, he told Abraham And promised his family would be God's people, in God's place Under his rule, they will know his blessing His blessing, his blessing God's people in God's place under his rule they will know his blessing his blessing his blessing Abraham Isaac and Jacob 12 sons a nation are slaves in Egyptian hot sun but God had a plan through Moses his man he rescued them so they could be God's people in God's place under his rule they will 
his blessing. God's people in God's place, under his rule, they will know his blessing, his blessing, his blessing. Joshua conquered the land and moved in. Judges showed that they needed a king. God had a plan through David, his man. He ruled them and made them to be God's people in God's place. Under his rule, they will know his blessing, his blessing, his blessing. God's people in God's place. Under his rule, they will know his blessing, his blessing, his blessing. Solomon. Brought wisdom and blessing, but then division, rebellion, so God punished them. He sent them away, his prophets proclaimed that one day a remnant would be God's people in God's place under his rule. They will know his blessing, his blessing, his blessing. God's people in God's place. Under his rule, they will know his blessing, his blessing, his blessing. Jesus, everything finally revealed. The church, share the good news with the world. God made his plan before time began. When Jesus returns, we will be God's people in God's place. Under his rule. They will know his blessing, his blessing, his blessing. God's people in God's place under his rule. They will know his blessing, his blessing, his blessing. I hope you enjoyed that song again. Let's pray together now. Let's ask God to help us as we continue to hear from his word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you for the wonderful promises that we find in your word in the Bible. And we pray that you would help us to respond to those promises in the same way that Abraham did with faith. Help us, Lord, to have our mind and our heart fixed on your promises, especially during uh, this really difficult time that we're going through. And as we hear your promises again, and we see um, how your promises are worked out for this particular man, Abraham, and how they're fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, may our faith grow today uh, through the power of your word and through your spirit who speaks your word to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've already seen how those promises that God gave to Abraham are so important for the rest of the Bible story, the rest of the history of God's salvation of his people. And they are foundations for the future promises that God gives to his people, to future generations. And they're ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, because all of God's promises 
find their yes in Jesus Christ. As that song that we've just sung so helpfully shows us that those promises of a people and a place and blessing for those under God's rule, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. Now, what I want us to also look at today is how uh, there are often patterns to the way that God fulfills his promises, that God works in certain ways to act, to fulfill his promises. And those ways of working are sometimes repeated through history. God often does things in a certain way, using certain people and events, and that gets repeated over time. The exact details may not be the same, but there is a pattern to the way that God works. It is meant to echo what he's done in the past and to point us forward to what he's going to do in the future. The word that's used when we're identifying those patterns is, is sometimes the word typology. So a person or an event in the Bible's history can be a type of another person or another event later on in the future, later on in the Bible's history. And these patterns or types are recorded for us in the Bible under divine inspiration in order to build our faith. So they build our faith in the person of God because they, these patterns show us that God is working to a plan, that the events of history aren't just random, but they're all following God's plan. He is sovereign over all people and events. Uh, and these people and events fit into his plan. Yeah, but those people are, are still working and making decisions according to their own choices and their own actions. But amazingly, because God's so powerful and so sovereign, he is working those individual actions and decisions into his sovereign plan. So as we see these patterns of how God works, they build up our faith in the person of God, but also in the promises of God. When we look back to how God has worked in the past to fulfill his promises to his people, it gives us assurance that he can do the same again in the future. He is the same God working in the same way to fulfill those same promises to his people. And what it also helps us to do is to wait patiently for those promises to be fulfilled. Because we know God has worked in the past to fulfill his promises. He's going to do that again in the future. God has a plan. And God is working for our good in all the events and through all the different people of history. We see that uh, working through all of history. We see it particularly in Bible history. And we're going to see it here in this passage in Genesis 14. As we read about the events and the people in this chapter, we're going to take a step back. And we're going to look at how these events and these people fit into the whole of Bible history, the whole of God's story of salvation. I'm going to see God fulfilling his promises to Abraham and Abraham's family in the present. 
but we'll also see how these people and these events point us to the future and to a future greater fulfillment of God's promises. Now we're going to witness a great rescue, but also to see how this great rescue points us forward to a greater rescue to come. And we'll also be introduced to a great king and priest and see how he points us forward to an even greater king and priest to come. We're going to start with a great rescue in verses 1 to 16. So Kate read about these kings with funny sounding names and they were kings of cities that also had funny sounding names. I don't know if you noticed but there were actually two teams of kings uh, led by two team captains. Uh, there was Team Kedoleoma, or we'll, we'll call it uh, Team Kedo for short. Uh, Kedo was the king of Elam, and he led a team of four kings. And then on the other side, in the, uh, in the red corner, there is Team Bera. Bera was king of Sodom, and there are five kings in this team. The four kings, led by King Kedo, uh, they are mighty conquerors. We read in verses five to seven about some of the places that they conquered. And the team of five kings, they are rebels. They've rebelled against Kedoleoma and those that that serve with him. Uh, They are a rebel alliance, a bit like Star Wars. Uh, but they're not necessarily on the good side. In fact, none of these kings are particularly good. So we've got Team Kedo against Team Bera. We've got the conquerors against the rebels. Uh, If this was a normal service and we were all together, uh, what I might do is I might get some children out and they could represent the different teams of kings and we could even cheer for one of the, the teams. Um, So if if you fancy cheering at home, then one of you might want to cheer for Team Kedo. And somebody else might want to cheer for for Team Bera. Because there's a battle between these two teams of kings. War breaks out. And the winner is Team Kedo. Kedoleoma and the three kings with him defeat the five kings. So 14, four kings defeat the five kings. The conquerors defeat the rebels. And we see that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah flee in verse 10 and their cities are, are uh, <clears throat> plundered in verse 11. The four kings seize all the goods and the food in those cities and they carry away Lot and his possessions. Now this is where it gets interesting for us because Lot is the nephew of Abraham, uh, the one that God gave those wonderful promises to. And Abraham gets to hear about the fact that his nephew Lot has been taken captive by these kings and he launches a daring rescue mission. Uh, Perhaps you've seen Uh, pictures on TV or in the news of when a a rescue helicopter is launched to to go and and to save some people who are stranded or they've got into trouble in some way. Well, that's what Abraham is doing here. 
he launches a rescue mission to go and save his nephew, Lot. So he gathers the 318 trained men in his household and he pursues the enemy. He goes after them. And there's a surprise nighttime attack. Abraham routs the enemy using a pincer movement. So he divides his men into two and they, uh, they pounce on the enemy. And Abraham routes them. He's got them on the run and he recovers all of the goods and all of the people that have been taken by the four kings, including his nephew Lot and Lot's possessions and Lot's family with him. It is a great victory and a great rescue against the odds because Abraham's only got 318 men with him. Uh, we don't know how many men the four kings have, but we could imagine that, that their resources are probably bigger than the one man on his own. And yet this is a great rescue. Now, we've already seen a great rescue already in the book of Genesis. I wonder if you can remember what that great rescue was. Well, it involved a man called Noah and a big boat called an ark. God called Noah. Noah was righteous and God looked upon Noah with, with favour, with grace. And God rescued Noah and those who were with Noah from this worldwide flood and everything and everyone on earth was destroyed by the flood except for Noah and those who were with Noah. That includes Noah's family and the animals. And they were rescued because of their association with Noah, because they were with Noah in the ark. The, the text in, in Genesis brings that out for us. And it's the same for Lot. Lot is rescued because of his association with Abraham, because he's Abraham's nephew. In fact, three times in just a few verses, verses 12, 14 and 16, we're reminded of Lot's connection with Abram, that, that Lot is Abram's nephew, that he's related to Abram. That, that is stressed uh, here in this passage, just so that we know that Lot is being rescued because he is part of the family of promise. He's part of Abraham's family. Now, Lot had got himself into trouble. He had chosen to live in this city called Sodom, which actually wasn't a very nice place to live. We're going to find out later um, in Genesis 19 about that in a few weeks time. So he's got himself into this mess. But Uncle Abraham comes to the rescue and saves him. And this rescue against the odds shows us that God is working for Abraham's good and for the good of Abraham's family to fulfill the promises that he has given to Abraham. God is showing us that if you're part of Abraham's family, then you are going to be blessed and you are going to be protected. God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and those who are against you, those who curse you, I will curse. So we see people who have gone against Abraham and Abraham's family have been defeated. God is fulfilling his promises here to Abraham. 
through this mighty rescue. And throughout the Old Testament, we see further examples of how God rescues his people in fulfillment to the promises given to Abraham. Even when that rescue is against the odds, God is working for the good of those who are in Abraham's family. We might think about how God rescued his people through Gideon in the book of Judges. And Gideon had a small army. In fact, Gideon's army was 18 people fewer than Abraham's army. Gideon had 300 people in his army, and yet he was able to defeat a whole nation, the nation of Midian. You can read about that in Judges 7. We might remember how God defeated the Philistines through the boy called David. And David just had a sling and a stone up against a big warrior, the giant Goliath. But with that little stone and that sling, God used David to defeat the enemy and to rescue his people. Or you might think later on in the Old Testament of Daniel in the lion's den and how against the odds, when it looked like Daniel was going to be devoured by the lions, that God rescued him. He rescued one of his people, somebody from the line of Abraham, from certain death. And all of those rescues point us to an even greater rescue by another descendant of Abraham, the Lord Jesus. Abraham in rescuing Lot from captivity is a type of a greater rescuer to come. He points us forward to Jesus, who had rescued God's people from captivity to sin and death against the odds. Jesus defeated sin on the cross on Good Friday, and he conquered death by rising from the grave on Easter Sunday. And we look forward to the final fulfillment of this rescue. We look forward to the day when sin and death will finally be defeated at Jesus' return. And we will forever be rescued from these enemies. And knowing this and believing this gives us confidence and hope that whatever we face, whatever enemies might be against us in this life and in this world, our rescuer will deliver us. You see, he's done it in the past and he will do it again in the future. There is no enemy who is so great that, that he can overcome God. Jesus is the ultimate rescuer. And so we can confidently say in the words of Romans 8, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? What enemy is there out there that could defeat us if God is for us? And the answer to that question comes in the next verse of Romans chapter 8. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's how we know that God is for us and therefore that we do not 
We don't need to fear anything else, any other enemy that could be against us. We look back to Jesus' rescue at the cross and through his resurrection. And we look forward to an even greater rescue to come. And in the meantime, between these two rescues, we trust that God is for us and he will deliver us from all our enemies. So we've seen a great rescue and a greater rescuer to come. And now we turn from a great rescue to a great king in the second half of Genesis 14. And I'm going to read uh, the rest of the passage to us and the words will appear on the screen. So Genesis 14 and we're diving back in at verse 17. After Abraham returned from defeating Kedileoma and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord God most high, the creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I will accept nothing for what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Ana, Eshkol and Mamre. Let them have their share. <clears throat> so we're thinking now about a great king. We meet here the mysterious Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek means righteousness. He is the king of righteousness and he is king of a place called Salem, which we know as Jerusalem. And that word Salem uh, means peace. So Melchizedek is king of peace and he is king of righteousness. So verses 1 to 16 have shown us that Abraham is in a way a kind of a king. He's certainly uh, on an equal if not greater than the kings that we read about in this passage because he's able to, to, to defeat those kings but there is a greater king who now comes onto the scene. And we know that he is a greater king than even Abraham, because Abraham gives to this king, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. But Melchizedek is not just a great king. He's also priest of God most high. He is also a great priest. Now, a priest is somebody who acts as a go-between. Somebody who stands between God 
and human beings as a kind of a mediator between the two. And we see how Melchizedek acts in that role between God and Abraham. So through Melchizedek, God blesses Abraham in verses 19 to 20. He says, blessed be Abraham by God most high. And again, God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham here, a promise of blessing. And this blessing is coming to Abraham through God's priest, through Melchizedek. And Melchizedek reminds Abraham and us that this victory came because of God. God gave Abraham the victory. And in response, <clears throat> Abraham is saying thank you to God by giving God a tenth. He, he's responding by giving an offering. And he gives that offering through God's priest, through Melchizedek. So we've got the, the blessing coming to Abraham through Melchizedek, and we've got Abraham's response of worship and thanksgiving coming to God through Melchizedek. But there is another king in this scene. The king of Sodom is there, and Abraham refuses to receive anything from the king of Sodom. He's received a blessing from King Melchizedek, but he doesn't want anything from the king of Sodom because Sodom represents the world and everything that is bad about the world, everything that is evil and wicked in the world. And Abraham doesn't want anything to do with that. Abraham is trusting in God. He is trusting in God to provide for him. He has received the blessing of God through God's priest, and he is receiving in faith what God can give to him. He's acting in faith by saying yes to God and God's blessing and God's promises and saying no to the world and what the world can give to him. He's saying to, to the king of Sodom and to the whole world, he's saying, I don't need you to make me rich. I don't need your possessions, your goods. I am trusting in what God can give me, the blessing that God has given to me, the promises that he's given to me are enough for me. I don't need to take anything else. God and his promises and his blessings that come to me through God's priest is enough for me. And that's where the story ends. And we don't hear about this king priest Melchizedek again, at least not in the book of Genesis. He just disappears from the scene. But he does come up again a thousand years later. And there's another king, another king of Jerusalem, who talks about King Melchizedek. And this king is David. And he is the first Israelite, the first Hebrew, the first member of Abraham's family to sit on the throne in Jerusalem, to sit on Melchizedek's throne in Jerusalem. And David talks about Melchizedek 
in Psalm 110. Now, we haven't got time to read Psalm 110 now, but we'll not have a look at it later. And it's really interesting when you, see, when you read Psalm 110 that all the elements that we find in Genesis 14 are repeated in Psalm 110. And it's probably likely, I guess, that, that David, as he writes Psalm 110, has got Genesis 14 in his mind because he refers to Melchizedek, but he's also referring to some of the things that happen in Genesis 14. So in Psalm 110, there is a great victory in which kings are defeated. And there is a great king who rules over the whole world. And there is a great priest, a priest who will minister forever, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And it's clear from that psalm that David saw Melchizedek as a type, a pattern of somebody who would come later on in history. That Melchizedek points us forward to another kind of priest, a priest who would have an eternal priesthood, an eternal ministry. And this priest, like Melchizedek, would also be a great king, a great victor. In fact, we're being pointed forward here to the greatest king and the greatest priest. So who does this type or this pattern refer to? Well, come with me to the New Testament and the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. And Psalm 110 is quoted a number of times in the book of Hebrews. And when we get to chapter seven of Hebrews, it fills out for us what David meant when he wrote this psalm and who it was that he was pointing us forward to. In Hebrews chapter seven, verse three, we're told that Melchizedek resembles the son of God. Melchizedek is a, a type of the son of God, the one who lives forever who has no beginning and no end and the one who is also the king the king of righteousness the king of peace Melchizedek points us to Jesus that's what uh, Hebrews 7 makes really clear to us I'm going to read verses 24 and 25 of Hebrews 7 and the words will come up on the screen says that because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Jesus is the greatest king and the greatest priest who has completed the greatest rescue ever. Do you think of yourself as somebody who needs saving? 
as somebody who is in danger and needs to be rescued. Well, the moment maybe you think that life is going okay. Yes, we're all in a, a difficult position at the moment, but maybe for yourself, you're, you're not in, in dire straits and there are lots of people worse off than you. And you might think, well, I don't need saving. I don't need a rescuer. But the truth is that all of us have been taken captive by an enemy. Like Lot was taken captive by the four kings. We've been taken captive by sin and death. And we need somebody to rescue us. And the good news is that a rescuer has come. The greatest king has come to rescue God's people. And this king has defeated the greatest and most powerful enemies that we could ever face. And he continues to act on our behalf before God as that great priest, the greatest priest, the priest who lives forever and intercedes forever before God's throne for us. And that priest will not let us down. He is able to save us completely. His salvation is an eternal salvation. It's never going to fail. There will not be an enemy who can defeat our king and our priest. So when we look at the pattern of how God has worked in the past, or how he worked for Abraham, how he worked for other people through the history of the Bible, how he's worked for God's people through human history as well, through the last 2,000 years of church history. And maybe you can look back to your own history and you can see how God has helped you and rescued you in the past. That helps us to look forward to the future. Seeing those patterns helps us to look forward to God's ultimate fulfillment of his promises to us it helps us to wait for those promises to be completed and it gives us the confidence that God is for us and if he, he is for us then who can be against us our greatest enemy has been defeated by the greatest rescuer by the greatest king and the greatest priest. And our hope is found in him alone. Let's pray together before we sing our final song, which proclaims our hope in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that all of your promises are yes in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the way that, that, that all of your plans and all of your promises point us forward to him. That the way that you've worked in the past, those patterns and those types uh, just show us uh, how you have been planning everything to be fulfilled by Jesus. And you're still at work in this world, Lord. You're still working out your plans and your purposes for your people, just as you were with Abraham. You're working for us today. Help us 
to see the way that you're working. Help us to see those patterns and help us look forward in faith to the ultimate fulfillment of those patterns and those promises in Christ. Keep us in him we pray, in our great King and Priest. In his name we ask. Amen. Well, let's close our service by singing together a song of praise.